นะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะปุถังธรรมังสังขังนมัสสามิ
uh, one here at Amravati, and then one yeah, uh, three, about three or four up in Chiang Mai, in the, a little place where we would hold retreats uh, up in the Chiang Mai area. So it was, that, it was and, and the most recent of these was the one in France, um, and it was there when I was um, in, uh, with the the group in uh, in Provence, and um, was talking about uh, exit point one, two, and three, and then uh, it occurred to me that. Uh, uh, there, I hadn't really put it together that they were associated with with the noble truths and the way of working with the the four noble truths. And it was there when I was sitting in this meditation hall in this. It was, it's actually a former Christian monastery, a Catholic monastery. So sitting in this ch- the big chapel of the, this uh, uh, ex Catholic monastery, and then it, the, that exact train of thought crossed my mind. Oh. Well, the, the, those three exit points seem to be associated with the, the first three of the Four Noble Truths. I wonder if there's a fourth exit point, and, and how would that be connected to the fourth truth? Hmm. <laughs> so my, my mind was sort of uh, exploring things in that way. Uh, also, when you're being translated, you have these long pauses where you say something, and then it's being translated into French. So you have these sort of natural reflective pauses. You say something, and then as the translator is putting it into their own language you go hmm <laughs> I wonder how that works or I wonder what to, I wonder if there's a different way of approaching that so just in the teaching process there was a lot more of that kind of um, pausing and reflecting uh, along the way so uh, again this isn't some sort of classical definitive way of interpreting it but just uh, a, 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 a useful pattern that occurred to me uh, at that time and then since then I thought uh, when I I use that particularly, particularly talking about the fourth exit point and these principles. I felt well, this this is a, a useful way of talking about it, and um, so I was inclined to to develop that. So since that time, I've used the same format in talking about dependent origination and cessation uh, several times uh, uh, since then, which is now about three years ago. Uh, also, but if you're interested, this is the, the 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 pictures I use for the inside of the front and back covers. That's uh, one of the, the the trees in the garden outside the monastery in in Provence in the springtime. So it gives you a sense of the 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 bright green and the blue sky, bright green of the fresh uh, uh, young leaves and the the bright blue sky of the south of France. So the next section is called "Good Friends on the Path." Uh, any questions or thoughts before I go into that? Okay. It is natural to consider how to maintain the skills and insights derived from the contemplation of and insight into dependent origination in every kind of environment. How do we sustain Dharma practice in an active, engaging, and colorful world? A central feature of solitude or being in a retreat situation is that we refrain from conversation. Therefore, we're able uh, to be more aware of our inner world and the flow of experiences, thoughts, moods, and perceptions. Also, particularly if you're in a retreat, you have to do a minimum of decision-making. There's a routine that you don't have a, uh, you don't decide on. It's just that's the routine. That's what you follow. You're not talking to anybody. Uh, uh, you don't have to do uh, much in the way of decision-making. As a set pattern of conduct, so it's, it's extremely simple and um, a very, very plain environment. And also, everyone's living according to the precepts, so that the uh, not only are people not speaking, but there's a, a, a high standard of, of respectful, of polite uh, uh, relationship between between people. 
uh, outside of a retreat situation and in, in the world at large, then it, as we know, it's it's not like that, and um, it's a much more uh, colourful and mobile and and, and engaging uh, situation uh, with a lot more emotional pulls. When we're we are, when we are in an environment where we have to talk to other people, have to perform as a human where we have an active personality, a life, a name, an occupation, when we are engaging with other people and taking up responsibility and decision-making, receiving the expectation and the needs of the world, that is to say 99% of most of our waking lives, the mind is very easily and naturally drawn into those activities. The world requires us to create the past and the future, to remember our commitments and to make sensible plans and have all kinds of opinions in the present moment. So, how do we sustain attention on the reality of the present? How do we not get lost in those creations of the remembered past or the imagined future? How do we avoid being drawn into created abstractions about the present that the mind is so easily pulled into? So also remembering that performing as a person, that, that I think a, a little while ago I was pointing out that the word person comes from the Latin persona, which means a mask. Per means through, sona is sound. So it's a, the mask that actors on a Greek or Roman theatre would wear, that, they, that was part of the, the, you know, the, the acting process. So our word person in English comes from persona, so it's literally putting on a mask to, to meet the world, to, to perform as your your personality, your role in the, your your family, in your in your work, uh, in in the uh, life on the street. So we put on our personae. There are many different things that affect our lives. One of them is relationships, who we choose to spend our time with, because that has an effect. If we've chosen to spend a week together with people who like to meditate who are not concerned about looking attractive all the time, people who don't need to be entertained or charmed by us, people who can deal with discomfort without complaining, that will likely have a relaxing effect on the mind. If we've chosen to spend a week together with people who like to go to boxing matches, on pub crawls, to royal receptions or to glamorous film festivals, there'll be a different kind of an effect. Can the Cannes Film Festival is couple of hundred kilometers away <laughs> from the, the retreat center. So <clears throat> there'll be a different kind of an effect. We will have been caught up in the excitement of the fights, wondering where we lost our phone, uh, worrying about which earrings to wear, or whether we wore the same suit as last time. I'm not saying that sports and pubs, royal events and film festivals are all intrinsically bad things, but how we choose to spend our time and who we spend it with has an effect on our mind and on our heart. There is a teaching of the Buddha called the Highest Blessings, the Mangala Sutta, which is found that we chant it here, um, both in the English and the Pali, um, and it's uh, from the Sutta Nipata. In the Buddha's time, the word Mangala meant a lucky charm or a protective spell or a blessing or an auspicious sign. So such things were not just seen as a spiritual blessing, but also means of personal protection. In this discourse, it starts with a deva coming to meet the Buddha. She asks the Buddha, what are the highest blessings, uh, the best sources of protection? The Buddha gives a list of 38 things. Every single one of them is about what you do. There's nothing whatsoever about amulets or magical tattoos 
or sacred objects. It's all about the choices that we make. Number one on the list of the sources of blessing is not to associate with fools, but to associate with the wise. This is the highest blessing. Asevana chabalanang panditanang chasevana. That's the the way that begins. So um, that's one of these these uh, many instances where somebody asks the, the Buddha a question, and he takes the theme and then approaches it, uh, responds to it from a slightly different angle. So very frequently it would be Venerable Ananda asking a question, you know, and then the, the Buddha would sort of pick it up and then say, "Well, you can look at it like this." But um, so this is one of those. Uh, those situations where it seems that this deva came along and said, you know, what are the best kinds of protection? What are the most sort of powerful ma- magical spells? I'm, I'm reading into it, but it's so usually that's what a, a mangala would be, some kind of lucky charm or some kind of, of protective um, magical spell that, that could be um, cast to, to bring about some sort of uh, fortunate result. And the Buddha ignores that kind of a mangala altogether and says what the real blessings are, uh, and then these um, that we recite uh, the um, the highest blessings. It's all about <coughs> the, the choices that we make uh, and the way the, the way that we live, the the, the priorities that we make in, in our lives. Uh, so, <coughs> that said, you might think, well, I'd love to not associate with fools. But that's my job, Ajahn, or you haven't met my family. And uh, those are actual quotations. <laughs> so I presented this a few times, and, uh, but in both uh, in this country and uh, in, uh, um, uh, in other places, uh, in, uh, in India, I was giving a, a, a week of teachings up in uh, Himachal Pradesh at Deer Park uh, Center and uh, different places. And I say, all very well, Ajahn, but <laughs> some of us don't have choices. Um, but uh, what, what I would say on that is even if you have got very difficult people in the workplace you know, in the family or in the, in the kitchen or the office or wherever um, there's still uh, that uh, the, the, there are choices that we make in who we draw close to or how much weight we give to the contact that we have you know, maybe you, you do have a, you know, a sister or a brother there's a problematic presence that is challenging to work with, but there's uh, there's different ways that we can kind of quote unquote associate um, uh, with with others, and um, and to not associate can also mean uh, even though you're in the physical presence, where you have to work with somebody, a difficult person in the in the school or the office or the in the monastery or in the family, but. Uh, to not associate also means not carrying that person around in your mind, to not be you know, uh, ruminating or thinking about that person and how, uh, if only he was like this, if she was just like that, or, or what am I going to say to him, or uh, why does she always do that? You know, we, we create each other in our minds, and we easily carry each other around. People that we are in conflict with, or people that we're, we're obsessed with, or infatuated with, we, we create each other and carry carry others around in the mind. So the not associating um, with fools, uh, I would suggest it doesn't just refer to uh, the sort of physically keeping company, but it's also how uh, we carry people around in our minds. And that, uh, that uh, the, the weight that we give to a particular connection or the, the degree to which we allow ourselves to be upset or, or, you know, or anxious or, or excited about the company of another, 
there's a, there, there's different ways that we can uh, the attitude that we bring to any kind of connection is is part of it. So even if we are ne- by necessity close to uh, some quote unquote foolish person or challenging person, uh, the way that that is handled is is on on our side. It's, we're not just victims of situations, but we can work with those things internally in terms of our attitude as well. Any thoughts, questions? Nobody has had to deal with associating with fools? <laughs> Trying to find some wise people to associate with? Yes, Lindsay. Yeah. Uh, Pastor, uh, when you mentioned about interpersonal relationship, I can't help to think about the original nature with we've discussed before. So if the original nature is the same and shared by all the beings, then uh, there, uh, the way we communicate should be uh, a certain channel, right? Uh, depend- well, should is a very loaded <laughs> word because uh, you know, the, the conditioning of how how beings manifest and how they communicate and what their their habits are is is enormously varied. So ideally, uh, even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a with, uh, you know, with, with uh, infinite kindness, we relate to all beings. <laughs> some uh, some beings are easier to relate to uh, like that than others because of the conditioning of behavior and conduct and and uh, so on and so forth. So, um, in that we we recite, we learn those teachings and recite those teachings to to set a standard. But we have to work with the the um, patterns of experience as as they arise, you know, moment by moment, day by day. Yes, um, because I was thinking that somehow it's difficult for us to. To really find the uh, unconditional compassion for people, because even the the metaphor we can use in in the sutra is like a mother care about her only son, and that is a social condition, a moral condition, and it is also limited. Yeah, well, the, the imagery is there in the sutta, but uh, it's also, particularly with, with loving-kindness, um, the principle that Lumpur Sumedha would, would uh, almost always outline is we're not trying to make ourselves like everything, but uh, we, can, we, can, uh, we can train the heart to not hate even that which is not likable. We, can't, we don't have to dwell in aversion. So many, many years ago, 40 years ago, he started translating as uh, uh, metta as not dwelling in aversion. So we can be kind to even things that are not likable. We don't have to be unkind. That we can do with no hypocrisy, uh, no, um, you're not sugaring anything over. We don't have to be unkind. We, we can refuse to hate. Even something which is not likable, which is, you, you, and by refusing to hate or, or to contend against, it doesn't mean that you approve of their actions. Uh, what maybe what they're doing or the way they are is not likable. You're not you're not condoning what they do, but you are refusing to add to the negativity and contention by by hating. 
so we can be and I felt that was a very very helpful way to talk about it so and from from years ago that Lumpur Sumato realized that we we mistake loving for liking and and that just to take a principle that we can be kind even to things within ourselves or, or, you know psychological states within ourselves or qualities of other beings we can be kind towards that which is not likable and that kindness doesn't have to manifest as as say um, supporting what that person does or or, or giving a, 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 a somebody what they're asking for that when a, uh, when a child says I want ice cream for breakfast it's not an act of kindness to say yes how much would you like <laughs> it can you know, uh, you can be kind by saying no. That's not. Uh, it's not. You can't have ice cream for breakfast. So kindness doesn't always mean going along with a particular opinion or desire or, or a, a, a mode of action. Um, I often give the example of um, this: a woman uh, who was uh, pr- uh, helping to protect the forest in, in Northern California, Julia Butterfly. And uh, she she climbed up into this redwood tree and stayed up there for two years. Didn't put foot on the ground for two years. And she was up there in the middle of uh, you know, summer and winter through big sort of storms off the Pacific and you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, and uh, she uh, it was interesting that she was part of a, a group called Earth First that launched the protest. Um, and they the some of the people in Earth First wanted her to denounce the logging company. And sort of to, to speak up against the, the, the owner of this Ma- uh, Maxim Corporation, uh, Mr. Horowitz, and she uh, and she wouldn't uh, uh, criticize, she wouldn't um, uh, go along with with um, cultivating hatred and, and uh, aversion towards him. And so some of the Earth First people were quite upset with her. It's like <laughs> you've got to, you know, you're you're our torchbearer. You know you've got to you've got to speak up against this guy. And she said. Yeah, I, I oppose him cutting the trees down, but I refuse to hate him. And that, and and her refusal to to support hatred uh, for uh, and uh, that kind of negativity towards him and and, uh, and his company was apparently, seemingly, that was the thing that actually uh, helped the forest to be preserved. That. Uh, uh, that, that was a, a kind of the deciding feature was they got far more support that she was just this yes I, I, um, I, I'm up this tree yes I love you completely and no I'm not coming down <laughs> until you agree to not not cut this tree in this whole huge exclusion uh, protection zone around that that area of old growth redwoods so yes I love you completely and no I'm not coming down <laughs> until you sign that until you sign the, the legal agreement and there was a wonderful photograph after after he agreed and the company protected the, that forest. Um, the two of them meeting on the ground. <laughs> she came down eventually after two years, and uh, he's in his sort of business suit, and she's this kind of hippie, uh, bright-eyed hippie woman. And she's reaching out to his chest, sort of holding her hand up against his heart. And he's got this look on his face like. I don't really know what to do with this. <laughs> it's kind of weird, but it's kind of all right. And, and his his face was uh, like sort of slightly pleased, slightly confused, and and slightly out of his depth. But yeah, she was uh, just that's what she was relating to, and that that's what helped to protect the forest. So that um, uh, 
there are many, many challenges in our lives. Uh, and so it's really mindfulness and wisdom that is the guiding force of how to relate, in, how to exercise kindness and, and compassion. And that sometimes it is to you know, get in the way, you know, stand in the way and say, no, I, I refuse to hate you, but no, I'm not getting out of the way. Yeah. And that, that takes a lot of mindfulness and wisdom to, to do that. So far, in the effort to focus on practical applications of dependent origination, there has been an emphasis on the exit points from the cycles of addiction and rebirth. It has been described how three exit points relate to the first, second and third noble truths. I would suggest there is, that there is indeed an exit point related to the fourth noble truth. This fourth truth is the noble eightfold path. This is the medicine that brings about the cure for the spiritual malaise of dukkha. As you might expect, the Buddha gave instruction on how to work with this noble truth too. He named the task for the fourth noble truth, the path that leads to the cessation of dukkha, as it is to be developed, cultivated, brought to fruition. Idang dukkha nirodagamini patibada aryasachang paveta banti. So that means to be it is to be developed, should be developed. He also defined that path in the same discourse simply as the middle way, Manchima Patipada. How then does that fourth noble truth and the means to work with it relate to exit points from the cycles of addiction and birth and death? The noble eightfold path is all about our intentions and our choices. It's about how we work and act internally and externally, the attitude of our mind, what we say and do, and who we choose to be with. So, um, for those of you who are not totally familiar with the Eightfold Path, uh, it's there at the beginning of the chapter. Um, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So some internal aspects, some uh, external aspects of that. If we intend to not allow ignorance to arise, as per the third exit point, uh, then we need to see what gives ignorance its strength and to work to deprive it of that fuel. A fire will go out if there's nothing left to burn. Thus the fourth exit point is talking about depriving ignorance of its fuel, not giving ignorance, unmindfulness, any support. It's a question of remo removing the fuel from the vehicles of ignorance, not providing that army with nutriment and the means to operate. There's a teaching in the Numerical Discourses, Book of the Tens, uh, Sutta number 61. So you remember the one with the tree that I, I was talking about um, yesterday? Uh, uh, as Book of the Tens, Sutta 58. Well, this is three suttas on. This is uh, number 61. And it's, I'll, I'll refer to it in here in a minute. Where the Buddha talks about the causes of ignorance. He starts off by reflecting, what is the nutriment, what is the supportive condition for ignorance? He then names the five hindrances, the nivarana, as the nutriment, the support for ignorance, the fuel for ignorance. The five hindrances are sense desire, ill will, dullness and sleepiness, restlessness and skeptical doubt. So karma raga, biapada, uh, uh, tinamita, udacha kukucha and vichikicha. The Buddha then reflects on what is the immediate nutriment of the five hindrances. 
He defines the fuel for the five hindrances as, quote, the three kinds of misconduct, unquote. That is, misconduct in body, speech, or mind. The Buddha then reflects on the nutriment for these kind, three kinds of misconduct. He says that the fuel for these three kinds of misconduct is, quote, a lack of sense restraint, indriya sangvara. This means being careless and indulgent in sense activity, in what we look at, listen to, taste, smell, and touch. Being reactive rather than responsive. So uh, the terminology like the uh, sense restraint is a, a bit of an unusual term in English, at least. Uh, so uh, I think yesterday I was talking about the difference between reacting and responding. And so it's exactly that. So when there's a lack of sense restraint is... Uh, if you like something, you'll chase after it. If you dislike something, you'll try and get rid of it or, or you know, oppose it. So there's no uh, space for reflection and consideration. So the mind is reactive. Sense restraint doesn't just mean um, not acting on an impulse um, by will, but it's, it's in a sense uh, learning to be more responsive to situations, more responsive. Uh, there's a bit of space around liking and disliking, comfort and discomfort. And so there's that... Uh, I think a, a helpful way of looking at that of indriya sangvara or the lack of indriya sangvara is to be uh, is uh, when the when the, the mind is reactive rather than responsive, then that is something that f uh, fuels this whole uh, say process of ignorance. Then, what is the nutriment? What is the fuel for being unrestrained in the senses? That is named as lack of mindfulness and clear comprehension, sakisampajanya. What, in turn, is the nutriment? What is the fuel for the lack of mindfulness and clear comprehension? It is unwise attention, not using wise reflection, which is yoniso manasikara, attending to things unwisely, like the things that we look at, listen to, you know, eat, smell, taste, touch. Uh, the, uh, not using wise reflection in relationship to uh, the, uh, the, the world around us or within us. What is the, the nutriment, what is the fuel for unwise attention or putting the mind onto un, unhelpful or confusing things? This is defined as being the lack of faith, sadha. What is the fuel? What then is the nutriment for lack of faith? Uh, it is, quote, not hearing the good dhamma, sadhamma savana. And what is the cause? What is the fuel for not hearing the good dhamma? This most significantly is named as not associating with good people. Sapurisa Sangseva is associating with good people and not associating with good people, um, choosing to hang out with foolish people instead. So, that is the root. The origin of this whole causal chain is related to who you choose to spend your time with. Hence, monasteries exist, retreat centers, uh, spiritual groups, uh, meditation groups, and so forth. That, uh, that's uh, the reason why these kind of places and institutions um, are seen as valuable is one of the reasons is the, the kind of company um, that you, you keep. It's a sort of good behavior club rather than a bad behavior club. So the imagery that the Buddha uses in, uh, in this um, to sort of describe that causal chain, again, he's supremely gifted in coming up with, with helpful and memorable images. Um, so this, uh, again, this Sutta 61 of the Book of the Tens, he's describing how 
Um, not, associating with, not, associating, not associating with good persons, becoming full, fills up not hearing the good Dhamma. Not hearing the good Dhamma, becoming full, fills up lack of faith. Lack of faith, becoming full, fills up careless attention. Careless attention, becoming full, fills up lack of mindfulness and clear comprehension. Lack of mindfulness and clear comprehension, becoming full, fills up non-restraint of the sense faculties. Non-restraint of the sense faculties, becoming full, fills up the three kinds of misconduct. The three kinds of misconduct, becoming full, fill up the five hindrances. The five hindrances, becoming full, fill up ignorance. Thus there is nutriment for ignorance, and in this way it becomes full. Just as, when it is raining, and the rain pours down in thick droplets on a mountain top, the water flows down along the slope and fills the clefts, the gullies and the creeks. These becoming full fill up the pools, these becoming full fill up the lakes, these becoming full fill up the streams, these becoming full fill up the rivers, and these becoming full fill up the great ocean. Thus there is nutriment for the great ocean, and in this way it becomes full. So too, not associated with good persons and so on and so forth. So that's an image that he uses a few times in the teachings, the, the kind of a natural process. It's, a, it's not... Uh, it's uh, the uh, just as rain falls on the mountain and then it, it uh, follows in this natural uh, uh, process, this natural ch- chain of causes and effects that uh, uh, this works with the mind in a similar way and uh, at the root of it is not associating with good people um, then uh, just to continue uh, he. The Buddha, being an extremely thorough and scrupulous teacher, then takes us back through the chain in the other direction, and at the conclusion shows what the beneficial results are of making better choices. If you choose to spend time with good people, uh, they will encourage you and support you in listening to good Dhamma, which gives rise to faith. Uh, which supports wise reflection, which supports mindfulness and clear comprehension and intuitive awareness, which supports restraint of the senses, which means living responsively rather than reactively and compulsively. This removes the fuel for unwholesomeness in actions of body, speech and mind, which removes the fuel, takes away the support for the five hindrances, which in turn removes the fuel for ignorance. In addition, he points out how wholesomeness in actions of body, speech and mind supports the development of the four foundations of mindfulness. These lead in turn to the fulfillment of the seven factors of enlightenment and he also describes, as he also describes in the Satipatthana Sutta, the foundations of mindfulness, and in the Anapanasati Sutta on mindfulness of breathing. And eventually these lead to true knowledge and liberation. This is all rather a long way of saying, be careful of who you choose to spend your time with. Where we have a choice, who do we draw close to? What do we choose to do together? There are so many choices in the modern world. Who do we communicate with? What company do we choose to work for? Whose Twitter and Instagram accounts do we choose to follow? What television programs do we choose to watch? Which friends do we choose to spend time with? What sites do we visit on the internet? If we are attentive, we see that during the course of a day, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of choices that we make. How do we spend our time? What information do we take in? Who do we choose to be with? All of that has its effect. 
I'm not encouraging us to be anxious and uptight, but to be discerning. If we choose time, if we choose to spend time with good people, sapurisa sangseva, that sets the conditions in place to support the effort to be awake and to not let ignorance arise. In the absence of ignorance, then vedana, feeling, will not condition tanha, craving, but rather, via concentration, mindfulness, and wisdom, as per our uh, Book of the Tens, Sutta fifty-eight, our uh, uh, marvelous tree. Uh, then Vedana, uh, via concentration, mindfulness and wisdom, lead to Nibbana instead of to Dukkha. This is what I would define as the fourth exit point from the cycle. Noble company. So, any thoughts? Questions? There's a lot of words from me there. But, uh... Yes. Sometimes it's not, um, it's not so simple just to divide foolish people from wise people. Sometimes you can speak to a fairly wise person, <laughs> foolish. So you have to be discerning in yourself and go have your own wisdom to measure it against. As, yes, uh, and uh, that um, also seeing the effects of like, having spent time with such a, such a person. Then, Looking at okay, what was the result of that? Well, that, you know, that was really enjoyable. That was really good fun. You know, how do I feel now? <laughs> like, oh yeah, I feel I feel good. That was really worthwhile. So, looking at the results of the choices that we make is uh, part of that the development of wisdom. So that uh, in the the four bases of success, the idipada, that uh, that fourth one is reviewing, looking back. Okay, what was the result of that? And or if you you are, are drawn into someone you know, the company of someone that you thought was noble company and a wise person, and you realise that that uh, you ended up getting tangled up in, in opinionating about this or getting into a um, a uh, uh, some kind of serious argument or a doubt or whatever, and think, well, okay, um, let's learn from that. That was my you know, I was. I had a good intention of spending time with that person, but the result has been this. It's been uncomfortable and tangled. Okay, so let's be guided by that. So that you're learning from the choices that you make along the way. There's a famous statement by Alexander Solzhenitsyn in the Gulag Archipelago, in one of his novels about the the prison camps in Russia, and he said it would be so convenient if uh, if we could just uh, separate the evil out from the good, and then just destroy the evil, and all that would be left with the good, or all that we would be left with is, is the good. Unfortunately, the line between good and evil runs right through, straight through the heart of every human being. <laughs> a very very wise uh, comment. So I quoted that quite a number of times over the years, and. Uh, and so that, uh, but yeah, I think it's helpful that the Buddha uh, lays it out like that, and also sort of number one on the list of the Mangalas in, that, in the Mangala Sutta, and also it's very. There's only a, a couple of places where the Buddha talks about the causes of ignorance. Usually, Avijja is sort of taken as a starting point uh, in the Samaditi Sutta, the the, the the Sutta on Right View. I think Venerable Sariputta gives that Dhamma talk, and he talks about the 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 
the outflows, the asava, as the, the fuel or the source of ignorance. But this one in, in the Book of the Tens, that's, I believe that's the most extensive um, uh, sutta on that theme, and it, it's this very rarely spoken about in other places. So the fact you've got that one statement, and it, and, and it goes through that whole causal chain, and that Sapurisa Sanseva is sort of right at the, the root of that. It's also the first one on the list of the, the factors supportive of stream entry, you know, the associating with good people, the, the four uh, conditions that support stream entry. And then Sadhamma Savana is the second one, listening to good Dhamma is the second one. Yoniso Manasikara is the third one. <laughs> so they're, they're, they're also not just depriving ignorance of its fuel, but they're also setting the conditions for that uh, uh, quality of profound insight, the stream entry. The fourth one of, of those four qualities supportive of stream entry is uh, Dhamma Anudhamma Patipada, which means practicing Dhamma in accordance with Dhamma, which is kind of it, which is really what the, the, the practicing the Eightfold Path free from self-view is, is, I would say, is the same as practicing Dhamma in accordance with Dhamma because it's, it's easy for um, self-view and the habits of eye-making and mind-making to, to come into the picture when we're trying to practice, trying to meditate, trying to live in a good way. But uh, that practicing Dhamma in accordance with Dhamma is you know, working to train the heart free of conceit, free of eye-making and, and mind-making. That's the the fourth one of that, uh, that particular list. But it, it is interesting that those um, qualities are, are so they, they match up with each other. There's uh, those first few elements of the, the causes for ignorance um, and, and the, uh, the opposite qualities that, that cause uh, true knowledge and liberation, they match up with those initial qualities supportive of stream entry. Associating with good people, uh, listening to good dhamma, Wise reflection on both lists. Uh, uh, another teaching I thought I might share because there was a question I think from Deepa. Is Deepa yeah, it's Deepa. You're asking about feedback. Um, there's an interesting, uh, again, in the Anguttara Nikaya, there's many, many teachings in this lot. <laughs> so um, this is also in the Book of the Tens. Sutta number 44, and it's about giving feedback. Uh, it's cast in the form of, first of all, for, for monastic practice, but you can, you can relate it into to lay life as well. Um, uh, so this took place at Kusinara, um, whether it was close to the time of the Buddha's final passing away or not, but it's, uh, it's in Kusinara, this little village where the Parinibbana took place. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Kusinara in a forest thicket of oblations. There, the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus. Bhikkhus, Venerable Sir, those bhikkhus replied. The Blessed One said this, Bhikkhus, a bhikkhu who wishes to reprove, like to give feedback to or to um, offer, uh, to, um, to uh, criticize another person, should examine himself with respect to five things and establish five things in himself before he reproves the other person. With respect to what five things should he examine himself? So there's ten altogether. So there's an initial five and then a, a second five. Number one, 
Bhikkhus, a bhikkhu who wishes to reprove another should examine himself thus. Is my bodily behavior pure? Do I possess bodily behavior that is pure, flawless, and irreproachable? Does this quality exist in me or not? If the bhikkhu's bodily behavior is not pure, he does not possess bodily behavior that is pure, flawless, and irreproachable, there will be those who say to him, please train yourself first bodily. There will be those who say this to him. So like, if you want to correct somebody else for, the, for uh, their bad behavior, make sure that your behavior is... Uh, is uh, in a, is in uh, in good shape first of all. Again, a bhikkhu who wishes to reprove another should examine himself thus: Is my verbal behaviour pure? Do I possess verbal behaviour that is pure, flawless, and irreproachable? Does that quality exist in me or not? If the bhikkhu's verbal behaviour is not pure and he doesn't possess verbal behaviour that is pure, flawless, and irreproachable, there will be those who say to him: Please first train yourself verbally. There will be those who say this to him. And again, a bhikkhu who wishes to reprove another should examine himself thus. Have I established a mind of loving-kindness without resentment towards my fellow monks? Does this quality exist in me or not? If the bhikkhu has not established a mind of loving-kindness without resentment towards his fellow monks, there will be, the, there will be those who say to him, Please first establish a mind of loving-kindness toward your fellow monks. There will be those who say this to him. So again, along with checking your conduct and say, well, I want to correct someone for the way they talk or the, the way they've been acting. Okay, what's my speech like? What's my behavior like? And then this third one is, so like I, I was thinking, I was, I was saying when we're talking about it, um, do I want you to be different so that I will feel happy? You know, am I irritated with you? Am I coming from a place of like, oh, because she's done it again. I can't believe it. How can she do that? So that's not a heart of loving-kindness, I would suggest, but reactivity and aversion. So that establishing a heart of loving-kindness is that sense of, well, this person's really making trouble for themselves and causing conflict and difficulty. Um, maybe I should bring something up so that they will stop causing themselves and others such harm and cause such problems. The fact that it will make me feel better is beside the point, but uh, just for, mainly for the, the benefit of the other person and the, and the well-being of the whole situation, then it might be good to, to raise something uh, for their benefit. So fourth, again, a bhikkhu who wishes to reprove another should examine himself thus. Am I learned? And do I retain and preserve what I have learned? Have I learned much of those teachings that are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end, with the right meaning and phrasing which proclaim the perfect and complete and pure spiritual life? Have I retained them in mind, recited them verbally, mentally, and investigated them, and penetrated them well by view? Does this quality exist in me or not? If the bhikkhu is not learned, and so forth, and has not penetrated them well by view, there will be those who say to him, please first learn the heritage. There will be those who say this to him. In other words, do you know what you're talking about? <laughs> have you got your, and in, in a more general sense, have you got your facts straight? That you might say, oh, you know, how could you do that? Or, I, you know, I heard that this, this person acted in this way or said that. Do you have the information? Did you check up and see that it actually happened that way? Um, or are you just acting on hearsay or your, your own um, uh, not completely informed perception of, of things? Fifth, again, a bhikkhu who wishes to reprove another should examine himself thus. Have both patimokas been well transmitted to me in detail? That's the, the rules of the nuns and the rules of the monks. 
well analyzed, well mastered, well determined in, in terms of the rules and their detailed explication. Does there exist in me this quality or not? If both party mokas have not been well transmitted to him in detail, in terms of rules and their detailed explication, and if when asked, where did the Blessed One state this? <laughs> he is unable to reply. Like if you're trying to correct somebody for their breaking the precepts or that uh, the, uh, their bad conduct, then if you can't say which, which rule does this person transgressed, where did the Blessed One state this? If he is unable to reply, there will be those who say to him, please first learn the discipline. There will be those who say this to him. So in terms of having your facts straight in terms of Dhamma, in terms of the teachings, in terms of uh, also in terms of Vinaya and the precepts. It is with respect to these five things that he should examine himself. And what are the five things that he should establish in himself? He should consider, I will speak at a proper time, not at, a, not at a, an improper time. So you choose a convenient moment. Like if I say, oh, Deepa, could we have a conversation at some point? There's something I'd like to bring up with you. Uh, you don't do it in in the middle of a Dhamma reading. <laughs> you Lots of other people around, you put a, you you put your mind onto it and think, okay, what would be a, a, a situation where we could speak freely and it wouldn't be intrusive or wouldn't embarrass a person? Or So you uh, you, uh, you speak at the proper time. I will speak truthfully, not falsely, so that you're doing your best to get your facts straight and to, to speak in accordance with what you know. I will speak gently, not harshly. Again, just choosing your words carefully rather than being acu uh, accusatory or, or rude or um, uh, using uh, sort of aggressive or abusive language. Uh, nine, I will speak in a benef beneficial way, not in a harmful way, so in a similar spirit, and I will speak with a mind of loving kindness while not harboring hatred. These are the five things that he should establish in himself. Because a bhikkhu who wishes to reprove another person should examine himself with respect to these five things and establish these five things in himself before he reproves the other person. So this could well have been just before the Buddha's final passing away. Like, oh, oh, by the way, <laughs> if any of you want to correct any of your uh, fellow Dhamma farers, then uh, bring this to mind. So, uh, it, I mean, there's there's not that many teachings given in Kusinara that I'm aware of, uh, and this this is one of them. But it's a very handy advice to have living in community, whether you're a, a monastic or a layperson. Again, it's Sutta number. Uh, 44 in the Book of the Tens, if you want to look that up. Yeah, make a note. <laughs> 1044. Yes? It seems like the odds of all those things being present in the lines are quite slim. <laughs> <laughs> Can we negotiate, is what you mean. So is it, sorry? Can we negotiate? Can we negotiate? Okay, yeah, because according to that, most of us don't have a leg to stand on to reprove. <laughs> um, yeah, according to the first five, if all five goes into Usually, you're not perfect yourself in speech. Not usually, but as a lay speaking as a lay person, seems to be the case that often probably won't be ticking the boxes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, you know, as with many of the teachings, the, the Buddha's laying out the standard, like, even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, should one cherish all living beings? Should. Um, 
And that, so that there's a setting of a standard, that the words are used to clarify the ideal, so you know what to aim at. And, and I, I've uh, used these teachings many, many times. And the, the, it, when I was living in California, there, there was a local yoga center in the in the nearby town. That, um, we would give teachings out once a month, and um, the uh, the one of the, the organizers of that. Um, I remember her saying, you know, so, so Ajahn, how free of the faults do you have to be before you bring it up? Like, if you know that you should be free of anger uh, before you raise the issue of somebody else's anger management issues with them, you know, you, you know that you should be, and, you, and you, that's something that you aspire to, but you're not quite in the clear as yet. You know, do you really have to be totally free of anger before you bring it up with another? And so, you know, not being sort of condoning being half-hearted or, or lazy, but rather, well, you know, as long as you know that's the, the, the aspiration or that, that there is that standard. And also, you can acknowledge that. You can say, I realize I'm not totally free of this myself, but, you know, the way that you talked to so-and-so uh, you know, this morning, that set off all kinds of alarm bells in me. So uh, if, I, if I could bring that up, with you, then that, I think it would be good for you to uh, say attend to that because that caused a lot of distress uh, when you spoke that way. So it, it's an aspiration. It's a clear aspiration, you know, like like a Buddha image. You you know, this Buddha image has been sitting like that for you know more than a century. Never gets knee pain. <laughs> Never has a sore back. It's a because it's, it's, it's an image, it's not alive, it's, a, it's an ideal. So, that we take the, the, many of the teachings, they're ideals, they set a, a very clear uh, and uh, beautiful and, uh, and appropriate standard, like a Buddha image. It, it's, it's an ideal, it's something to work towards, or it, bring, it evokes certain qualities, but um, yeah, you, you're not um, sort of... If the Buddha image makes you feel like I'm unworthy because I have to keep moving and my legs, my, my legs are sore, my legs are, uh, ache, and and uh, I can't sit like a Buddha image. Like, well, of course you can't because you're alive. <laughs> but you still, it still doesn't. It doesn't mean that the the image is uh, is not useful. It sets a standard. There's a, a clear goal to aim towards, or a model to be guided by. And then having that model, having that that ideal then it, it, it illuminates the, the things, the areas where you still need to work and, and things you need to attend to. So it's like a skillful use of idealism. So you have that kind of standard. Okay, this, you should be free of this. You should be totally conversant with the nun's rules, with the monk's rules, and, and be able to name exactly which rules. That probably may. <laughs> most of us would be challenged to say well it's, it's that rule with that subclause that, uh, that we're referring to here it's like possibly but uh, it's clarifying a, an ideal standard um, and then using that relating to that in a skillful way so it sets a direction but you the ideal in you what you're starting from where you are the ideal is like an informing principle at the edges, but you, you, you're starting from where you are, you work with, with the way the conditions of, of your mind are. So even if you recognize that you're not completely free of doubt or anger or, or fear or whatever, then you can 
acknowledge that. Well, that being the case, and this is a, um, there's an effort to work with this, but um, there's uh, uh, with that in mind and acknowledging that, then to, to speak from that basis. It's like you're not associating with fools. It's like that kind of empties out my contact list. <laughs> How many are left on my, you know, on my address list? So you know the, uh, but it's an aspiration, and it's that's uh, yeah. If you can incline away from that, if you can cultivate these qualities, so it's it's setting a a clear direction, and then that that uh, it's like a compass reading. You know, it's okay that that gives you a good direction then you do the best you can to work with that so we're nearly at seven so the, the last bit of this section was just going through those lists so these are the, the two parts of um, the Sutta 61 in the Book of the Tens what is the nutriment what is the supportive condition for ignorance the five hindrances what is the nutriment for the five hindrances, the three kinds of misconduct? What is the nutriment for the three kinds of misconduct? Lack of sense restraint. What is the nutriment for the lack of sense restraint? A lack of mindfulness and full awareness. What is the nutriment for lack of mindfulness and full awareness? Unwise attention. What is the nutriment for unwise attention? Lack of faith. What is the nutriment for lack of faith? Not hearing good dhamma. What is the nutriment for not hearing the good Dhamma, not associating with good people? And, in contrast, true knowledge and liberation have a nutriment. What is that? The seven factors of enlightenment. What is the nutriment for the seven factors of enlightenment? The four foundations of mindfulness. What is the nutriment for the four foundations of mindfulness? Three kinds of good conduct. What is the nutriment for the three kinds of good conduct? Sense restraint. What is the nutriment for sense restraint? Mindfulness and full awareness. What is the nutriment for mindfulness and full awareness? Wise attention. What is the nutriment for wise attention? Faith. What is the nutriment for faith? Hearing good Dhamma. What is the nutriment for hearing good Dhamma? Associating with good people. Sapurisa Sang Seva. So again, that's Book of the Tens, Sutta number 61. The, um, one of the many treasures that we have in the, the Anguttara. So any final comments, questions, thoughts? I have one question. Yes. I'm just wondering, because sometimes people contact with the other people, the outer appearance of the person seems to be very nice and polite, something is quite okay. But then the fire and irritation appear within ourselves. Sometimes it takes a really long time to discover where the irritation comes from. Mm -hmm. So, uh, how can we reflect on this? Maybe bring an image of the person? Or oh, you mean the other person's good behavior makes you yeah, irritated? But there is something very much irritated about this person. Uh -huh. So how to... <laughs> any advice how to work with this? It's happened to me. Yes, yeah. Probably many of us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was actually, at the, at the end, it was very good because when I discovered what was the irritation, so actually I was able to work with my, at the end I was 
working with my inner feelings. Mm -hmm. So, uh, how to how to discover what is behind this irritation? Well, with, with many things like that, when you, when you notice that coming up, yeah. that's just hmm, that's interesting. Because uh, part of my mind is very impressed with this person, or I think they're, or I, I, I name them as a, a good person, but but there's this irritated feeling that arises. But just to start off with, oh look, there's this feeling, and then where does this come from? And it might be that you are, the question is there, but there's no <laughs> no intuitive sense. But just to notice that 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 kind of reaction happens. Uh, first of all, and just to not feel like you've got to figure it out, uh, but just to know, oh look, when there's that, I'm around that person, this this kind of reaction happens. So it's important for us to not be filling in those gaps with a with an idea or sort of deduction or uh, to let the unknown be unknown uh, is is a use important part of, of dhamma practice. So you can see. It, some kind of reaction happening, but it's not clear wh- where that comes from, and and it might be that uh, you need to, to to look at that and see uh, uh, see it over and over a number of times before eventually, you know, a few weeks or a few months later. Oh, I think it's because of, of this. Is that right? You know, and then so you you the mind comes up with some intuitive feeling. Oh, I think it's it's that because they they are so perfect. They're trying so hard to be this perfect thing. It, maybe it's that tryingness. Maybe that's what sets my alarm bells off. Hmm, I'm just making that up. Yeah, but it can be. Oh, oh yeah, it's this thing. They're trying to perform this role. They're trying to be this this pure person, and that tryingness is irritating. <laughs> oh, maybe that's it. So then you, you know, and then you you watch and you go, oh, I think that's right. Because actually, it's really helpful that they're so polite and kind and generous. But it's this this performing of a role that uh, that there's a, a, there seems to be a lot of self involved in that, and maybe that's maybe that's what what it is. So you kind of explore and test out things as you go along, and uh, see how it works. I often mention how. Uh, here, right, actually, right here in the sala. This, yeah, this building is not going to be here for much longer, so you can't. Only a limited amount of time we can say this. But it actually was an exchange happened here in this sala, back in the I think the late eighties or early nineties, and uh, I'd always tried to be that kind of irritating. You know, I wasn't trying to be irritating, but I was. <laughs> I, I was irritating in trying to do everything right and be the kind of uh, so sort of. Uh, you know, the perfect monk uh, being uh, it was a sort of an obsession of trying to do everything right and be the be uh, be the best and be sort of super keen and and good at everything. And uh, after a time, I, I got the feeling within myself: this is really missing the point. I'm just sort of trying to uh, to act a certain role. There's a lot of me wanting to be this thing. And so I deliberately stopped doing that and just let myself be more average and not trying to be so sort of perfect and and helpful and and uh, uh, meeting this idea of the perfect monk. And uh, one of my my brother monks uh, said to me, 
you know, you're much easier to you're much more e- easy to live with since you stop trying to be perfect. So and it was uh, uh, it was annoying <laughs> to be with exactly. And that, but when I relaxed and just sort of uh, tried to to just be uh, more natural and just do things without trying to be something or fit some sort of idea, then that's what he said. And he wasn't trying to be, he wasn't accusing or, or trying to find fault. He just said, it was like a passing remark, you know, you're much easier to live with since you stopped trying to be perfect. Oh. <laughs> so that, the, that um, uh, uh, he had noticed exactly that. But with, with many things in uh, in life, some the, the exact reasons why we feel the way we do about each other, you can't. It's not. It's not sensible to try and pin it down too quickly. You know, it's because someone you around you might feel that you're really happy, you feel really good around that person, and then you can read all sorts of things. Or maybe we were related in a past life, or you know, this must have been my child or my dad, or or not. <laughs> you don't have to to create a whole story around it. Or people that just automatically irritate. It's like, I don't know what it is, but that person just annoys me. <laughs> well, like, yeah, I, I, Lumpur Sumedho would talk about this, this uh, when he was a young monk at Wobapong, there was another monk that he just wanted to hit him. And he said, I'm not, I'm not aggressive. I'm a, I'm a gentle person. I know I'm a Buddhist monk. But when I see that monk, I want to hit him. And for a long time, I like, why do I? Why do I want to? Why do I feel violent or aggressive towards that person? And it took him a, a long time to to talk exploring that. Why? Why is that reaction happening when I, I see this person? And so, you know, sometimes it can become clear. But that, in that instance, uh, the way Lumpur Sumedho talks about it, it was long before I showed up. You know, but uh, the way he talks about it, he realized because the body language of that monk was very fearful. He kind of cowered and was always sort of looking afraid, and and then uh, and so uh, Lumpur Sumedha realized, oh, he's putting out these fear signals, so it's triggering aggression in in me. It's not personal at all. It's some kind of instinctual thing that, like a kind of tribal instinct. If someone is cowering and showing fear, then it brings up aggression. You know, oh, that's really so. He he was quite insightful for him. It's like, uh, you know, it's actually not personal at all. It's because that person puts out that signal, it creates this reaction in me. Oh, <laughs> oh, it's anatta. But uh, there was no kind of past life connection or some you know clash or problem between them. It was just oh, that. but it took a, a while of him looking at that thing. Why do I feel like that? There's nothing wrong with him. Why do I, why do I dislike him to the point where I want to hit him? And then he thought, oh, it's just a human, sort of tribal instinct, you know, kind of the pack mentality, brings that up. And so you could see, okay, that that there wasn't anything to any kind of personal issue to work out between them. It's like because of that behavior, there's this reaction. There's the cause. There's the effect. And he could under, by seeing it, he could let go of it. But it took quite some time of seeing that reaction happening and then also choosing not to read too much into it, but just of getting to see how it worked. And then one day it just sort of, oh, 
that that that's uh, that's probably it. That's that's what the uh, the trigger is. Is uh, that manner, the body language, is having this effect. So li- leaving things unknown is really useful. <laughs> Let the unknown be unknown, and then then the intuitive process can function. Got some space to function. Okay, I think that's enough for today. Sadhu, 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 Sadhu.